0: and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest for me, a political hero of mine from the uh, band Grievous Angel, from the band L'Etranger, from the riding of Timmins, James Bay, and from the New Democratic Party, the first ever sitting member of Canadian Parliament to be on the show. Uh, I think first ever member of Canadian Parliament to be on the show. Uh, so what I would vote for if I could, Charlie Angus is here on the show and we are here to talk about what else? Punk. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turned out of punk podcast at gmail That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left 4 Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy the podcast that we do here each and every week. You can also support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes. And thank you. Thank you. To everyone that does do that You can also support it by heading over to Patreon.com And a huge, huge shout out To everyone that does do that And check out some of the stuff we put up on there There's video editions of, the, of some of the episodes A lot of the episodes now, actually, to be honest with you There's also um, uh, footnotes And unreleased episodes and, and other stuff So thank you to everyone that heads over there And checks that out and speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind support of the fine folks at Van who came, Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, we love what you do. We just don't love that you have to do it out of your own pocket. So they helped me cover the cost of doing this thing. And for that, I am very appreciative. And one day I long to be back at the House of Vans parties where I used to go and do the occasional live podcast and see a show and we'll get there. We'll get there one day. Speaking of getting there, uh, fucked up uh, is going to be going out on tour with Faith No More for a bunch of outdoor shows. Uh, you uh, do need to be vaccinated and and all that good stuff. So if you are around and and feel safe doing so, come out and see us. Check check out some of the dates that are posted online now. You can find well, I think there's only four dates in total, including Riot Fest. Um, but I'm very excited to be out on there on the road again. Very excited to be out with Faith No More. Uh, and uh, uh, speaking of uh, fucked up stuff, fucked up's going to be reissuing David Comes to Life on Matador Records, and we'll also be going out on tour in support of that in the new year, starting in January, I guess. Uh, more information about that can be found at fuckedup.cc. Uh, fucked up's also putting out a hour and a half long song called Year of the Horse. That is available for my good buddy, Scotty Karate at Tank Crimes Records. And finally, Fucked Up's original singles collection, the long, out-of-print, never released on vinyl, Epics in Minutes, is finally going to be getting a full vinyl reissue, thanks to our friends at Get Better Records. Please check that out. I'm super stoked that they're going to be doing it. I'm I'm very happy to be on that label. And, yeah, this thing looks awesome. I can't believe it's going to be a 12-inch. This is the only record that Fucked Up ever did that I had, like, a, a hand in designing. So... Can't wait to see this thing as a 12-inch Anyway, that is that On to today's show Now, today on the show, as I said off the top It's a political hero of mine Also a musical hero He plays in Grievous Angel, an incredible band That have put out a a, Not a brand new record uh, But a new record called Summer Before the Storm It is fantastic You can find that everywhere now It is on the uh, Jimmy Boyle Records label and it is a fantastic thing This episode was supposed to come out a long time ago And I have to apologize to my friend Melanie Kay Who hit me up about doing this episode I told her it was a dream episode to happen on the show And we did it And then unfortunately there was a hard drive disaster Which I've alluded to in the past I lost I lost a lot of episodes I thought this might be one of them But recently found another copy of this file And am very stoked that you get to hear it Because... In addition to playing a Grievous Angel, Charlie was also a member of Latrange a sort of second wave Toronto band, a key, key second wave Toronto band, also featuring former member of Parliament from the NDP party, Andrew Cash, who writes a new song on the brand new Grievous Angel record with Charlie as well. But Latrange has always been a band that has fascinated me, being that it has not one but two members of Parliament in that band, and... I just had to talk to Charlie. And so Melanie made it happen. And now you finally get to hear it. Now, the way it works in Canada, we, you kind of just, we have an election coming up and you vote for the person in your riding to be your member of parliament. And if you're lucky, that person is part of the political party that forms the majority and thus makes the government. And you know, they get to appoint the Senate they get to appoint or additional senators. They get to appoint the governor general. It, it, Functions a little bit differently in Canada than in, you know, America and, and other places. It's a, it's a parliamentary system. Uh, we do not get to vote for our executive. Anyway, the reason I'm explaining all this is because we do have an election coming up in Canada. And if you are in Canada, I implore you to uh, look at the issues, look at the people in your riding, and decide who you're going to vote for. If I was able to, if I was in Timmins and, and James Bay, I would be voting for Charlie Angus because he definitely falls in line on all the issues that I fall in line on, uh, as you will hear in this episode. But this is uh, I'm not telling you how to vote. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, you know, read up on this stuff, get informed on this stuff. Uh, and I'm honored, honored that I get to have Charlie on the show. So I'm not gonna ramble on anymore. There's a lot to get to. Once again, please, please check out the Grievous Angel record Summer Before the Storm when you get a chance, because it is a fantastic record. Check out Le J. We talk about so many great bands that are even obscure in Canada, even obscure in Toronto. And th- this is where all these bands are from. But anyway, I'm not gonna ramble on anymore. Here is I think I think we say the the right honorable Charlie Angus on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> charlie thank you so much for coming on the show
1: uh, i'm really into being on the show with you i'm really glad you're having me on I and mean, let's let's get down to it
0: well as i was just telling you off air not only am i a fan of your music but also you know I I, I I like i vote with the party so i feel like i'm politically and sonically in line with you so it's an you know it works on two levels having you here
1: well, perfect. and uh, politics and music. Uh, to me, punk punk, punk was an avenue for that. That's that taught me how those things are so interconnected and they've been interconnected in my life ever since.
0: Well, we're gonna get there, but I gotta start this off the way they all start off, which is Charlie, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre?
1: Um, I remember in grade ten accounting class uh, sitting at the back of the room. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why one line under this number was more important than two lines and why my columns didn't add up and everybody else was acing it. And I was looking out the window thinking there's a better world out there. And I started to read, my neighbor was giving me magazines from England and I was reading about the sex pistols and I was thinking, what the hell's going on in the world? and i went to the local record shop in the suburban mall because we had moved from my family was from timmins but we had moved to scarborough and there was the first clash album the first sex pistols album and i bought those albums and the woman at the counter said oh my god you're not gonna buy that are you and i thought man i am like holding kryptonite here i don't even i don't know what it sounds like i don't know what it is but i know there's something powerful here and those records After that, the world was no longer beige and brown. It was full of color. It was full of opportunity. It was full of ideas. And we didn't, I think, you know, being sort of in that, not, I wasn't quite in the very first break of punk. We were kids under that age group, Mm -hmm. but what I really try and say to people is that people think of punk now as like Mohawks and Studs and, and A Look and Doc Martens. What was really great about punks we didn't have any of that. We didn't know what punk was. We just knew that it wasn't what, we knew what we didn't like. And so punk was a doorway into other things. It was an opportunity to think outside the box, to maybe it's poetry, maybe it's art, maybe it's queer politics, maybe it's maybe it's just playing things really loud, but it's not what we've been told is the way to go. And to me, punk was always a way of rethinking the world where you actually have some power to make decisions
0: yeah i think that's what i love most about the toronto scene or like you know the greater toronto scene at that time is that you have a band like yourselves you have fifth column you've got the rent boys inc you've got the bfgs and everyone is punk rock but no one sounds the same and no one's doing it the same way
1: There was a lot of differences in the sound uh there were a lot of clubs and 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 there was a lot of hierarchies you know there was the art school crowd there was like more of a mod sound there were like i think les trangers our influences were kind of funny because we were definitely politically influenced by the clash uh the jam were a huge influence on us but we were probably the only punk band at the time that would Go to acoustic guitars in, in in the middle of the set which is very interesting i think considering where the grievous angels ended up but that came from other influences like neil young and for me growing up with i grew up on irish rebel music and uh and so there was a lot of there was a it was a it was the Toronto scene was really interesting. It was a real cauldron of bubbling things that I don't think any of us knew how to play properly at the time. I think a lot of the musicians that came out of that scene went on to form other bands and probably became better and more articulate. But it was that kids came out. Kids came out because there was nothing else to do. You know, we didn't have mm-hmm. like we didn't have cell phones. We had posters. Uh, so. People were trying and they didn't they didn't hardly know how to play and it made it exciting. And I think some of the most exciting shows I've ever seen are by performers that people today might not even have ever heard of.
0: Yeah, it's also amazing how much punk rock and, and sort of like this new music scene changed like the physical landscape of Toronto. Like just, you know, prior to punk rock, Queen Street Rest versus, you know, by nineteen eighty-two how that had changed so much like that street was pretty much opened up by by punks and and people playing in clubs
1: yeah and you know it's funny it's my daughters i have two daughters uh live in toronto and and i i I do a lot of grieving when i'm in toronto because i remember (laughs) walking down club streets where there were club after club after club of live music and you know i mean high-powered capitalism and real estate and losers like john tory uh who sign off on the developers all the time chase that out and beautiful clubs like the matador get turned into you know like how many more shoppers drug marts do we need on the main floor
0: Mm -hmm. on
1: great streets in toronto when there were a lot of i think that that was the other thing that made toronto really exciting at that time was it wasn't all that expensive to get a dive uh you know you had young punk uh, artists like Kingie Carpenter who could be right at Queen and Spadina doing her thing. Um, what's that village now down at Dufferin and, um, oh, Liberty Dufferin village. and King? Liberty Village yeah. was a dump. Yeah. We practiced there for 350 bucks a month. Every punk was down there. It was like the only thing you could eat down there. They didn't have fancy bistros. They had a subway. Uh, it wasn't even the chain. It was like a, a Greek family who sold subs and that's where you ate from. But that's where music and art was being created from because you could get a cheap space. People could set up cheap shops, people tried clubs. Uh, I think it's really really difficult to 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 cr- have a creative scene when Um, The costs of being creative are so daunting for for young people.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it's amazing doing the show, you know, like I've had people come on from Sweden, you know, and there's this huge, massive explosion of music that happens in the late 90s, mid late 90s in Sweden, like bands, you know, go all over the world. But if you trace it back, like all these bands were a direct result of having these government funded practice spaces and government funded recording spaces for all these bands to kind of get culture like you you have to feed it for it to grow you know like you have to have that soil like you know cheap art spaces cheap cheap rent in order for art to kind of flourish
1: yeah because i think the really important thing about being creative and about building culture is the power to make mistakes mm. uh to try you know to rent a space and decide you're gonna create a shop and it fails um I talk, you know, again my 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 youngest daughter and um the pressure that's on them. You know, the, the the zero tolerance like of people who go to university. I mean, all the people I knew went to university and dropped out the first year and tried something different. That wasn't a big deal, but now it is. And what it it does is it it crushes the beautiful I think this. I mean, Toronto. Toronto was known internationally because it was such a flowering place of, you know, it was reggae, uh, it was jazz, it was punk, it was folk. Uh, it became into hip hop. Like there was like all those possibilities happened because musicians could actually i mean i had a day job i made um, i I was a dishwasher andrew cash was a Mm busboy uh we practiced uh we 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 practiced 30 hours a week as a band because we weren't very good but like punk bands you know you would start out you'd get a job you'd play nights and the the multi the multitude of opportunities to play to work your craft to me that's the other thing it's it's not having one place or two places but having so many places so if you really bomb in one place the next club might actually let you try again and then you get (laughs) better and i mean you know that that to me is a diy experience of like learning your craft and your life in front of an audience and kids coming out or an audience coming out and being willing to either put up with you or boo you off the stage to me that was that i i I, about once a year, the Parliament um, Library of Parliament calls my staff and says, um, we noticed that Mr. Angus doesn't put any of his academic credentials down. Um, and my, my assistant Janet's great, she's phone calls into me and she says, Charlie, uh, it's the same question. Do you want me to get the same answer? And I said, yeah, tell him I went to punk rock university and got my degrees. <laughs> They've never put it up on the the parliamentary website but I keep t- tell them I I graduated from Punk Rock University and then and then we can <laughs> They've never done that though. They don't seem to think it's an official university. It was. It totally was.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and then and, you know there there are many people that have come out of that university, you know, like we talk about this scene and all these people that you mentioned, you know, go on to play in other bands or, or like yourselves and and Andrew Cash or in politics, or went on like the people from fifth column to become great artists or, you know, like it is, it is a scene that draws a certain type of creative individual to it and says, you know, gives them permission to kind of go out and create and go out and and make something. And there's not very many places that do that to a young person.
1: Well, I think that that's, that was the great thing about that scene um like you know um i I met a young guy um who uh wanted to you know study art and he said oh yeah my my art teacher knows you and i said how does she she know me and he said well she was a bass player in the band restless virgins (laughs) it's like yeah i remember those guys we played a number of shows with them and now she's this incredible artist and then my wife says oh you know her she's this like like i think that it's the tactile nature of getting up on a stage Mm -hmm. Of getting over your fears, of making mistakes, of having the mics not work, of people throwing bottles at you or heckling you, uh, that makes you decide, am I an amateur, am I just doing this for a lark, or do I actually believe I have something to say? And maybe music. I think some a lot of me, the great people who came out of that scene realized. Well, maybe it wasn't music that was what they wanted to say. Maybe it was something else. But that punk opportunity of saying, "This is a chord, this is another chord, this is a third chord." Now go form a band. To me, was a it was a revolutionary uh, way of seeing the world. And I I still I still sh- in the politics I do and wearing a suit and all that that ability to that belief. Of just let's just do it we can do this we can make it happen and then you would make it happen
0: i guess going back to the you know the beginning of the sort of punk rock academia journey like you mentioned that neighbor that was giving you british music magazines were they just someone that was into music or were they also kind of getting into punk rock like how did how did they enter your life
1: the neighbors actually was funny my parents like i I, we were from timmins Mm -hmm. you know mining town my parents were children of miners. my dad got a job in toronto we moved to scarborough in the 70s so like a lot of our neighbors were jamaican so we were listening they were playing they were like that was the first time i heard of reggae music right Mm -hmm. like and reggae was i think the other part of it reggae was this incredibly powerful political force but uh, across the road was uh I, i loved him his name was mike glass he was a postal worker who just had this amazing record collection <laughs> and you know mike mike was big and loud but mike had he had music magazines from england he had melody maker um and uh he would we babysit for his kids and he would give us the melody makers and i remember seeing like elvis costello on the cover now elvis costello is like mr respected but when you first saw elvis costello with the Miami is true look I mean that was the most radical breaking down of the the cool rock thing like we didn't even know what he like we were like who is this guy what is this yeah and um you know and, and so the neighbor the posty were the postie across the road was giving us these magazines cream magazine and reading about the sex pistols and what was going on and It was such an affront to the world of, you know, Emerson Lake and Palmer and, (laughs) you know, uh, Scarborough. I know I I get a, people get very offended now when I make fun of Rush, but my God, like all the guys I knew growing up with their kimonos and they're like wanting to write in five, eight time and write about Ayn Rand and all that crap. And we were like, what is this? And suddenly it's like, oh, there's a band called The Jam. (laughs) <laughs> like we could be them instead of Rush <laughs> and we wouldn't have to go out and buy BC rich basses and have to spend all our money on expensive stuff. We could just get a cheap trainer monoblock. I'll get a cheap bass, Andrew will get a guitar and we'll write some songs. So, you know, it was that, it was that's how simple it was. It was like, you saw something in a magazine, you heard like heard 45s, like the English beat. We didn't even know what they looked like. We played their records over and over and over and thought, wow, maybe we can do this.
0: You mentioned Elvis Costello there and, and just how shocking that would have been. And it's like it's wild to think now because we're like, you know, in a post Weezer kind of world, but like just how, what an affront to like Robert Plant, Elvis Costello's whole vibe would have been. You know, just like everything about it is just the opposite of what you're told a rock star is supposed to look like at that point.
1: Well, I, I think that that's the other really important element is that punk wasn't just rebelling against you know the margaret thatcher reagan world at the time it was also calling out what had happened to rock and roll mm-hmm. that rock and roll had become so smug and so established and so pompous and i think if i think one of the really uh, you know sell out things of what happened over the years is a lot of people who got that punk aesthetic then it went into the industry and then flipped it to the advantage so that the industry was always being relentlessly cool and relentlessly bad boy but even when it wasn't it was incredibly corporate but there was a time when groups like the sex pistols could really screw with the corporate brains trust that you know these corporations had they couldn't get their heads around this music a lot of these bands i, I remember the first time we played late Trangers was that was our first punk band with andrew we we played in ottawa at the roxy club and there was a lineup around the block to see us and we were coming from toronto to ottawa and we were stunned and it was because ckcu was the local radio station and ckcu had a transmitter that could be heard all through the city Mm -hmm. so all these young kids came out to see us And there was a guy from the local Q, you know, the Q92 kind of radio station. And he was a big fan and he was backstage and he was hanging out all night. And I I looked at him and I said, so do you guys, do you play us? And he goes, oh no, I'm not allowed to play you. And I said, then what are you doing at our show? And he goes, well, I love music, but our station hates music. We play Kansas, (laughs) we play Boston, (laughs) we play. Uh, And I said, man, oh man. He goes, I know it's, he said, this is, this is what we are. And so like, I see a lot of bands now, like I don't, think that they have the same kind of huge wall limits that existed then that there were like genres that you couldn't cross over i think i think one of the positive things now is that music just is moving it moves in all forms and but back then there were there were walls and you couldn't cross over that wall and punk was about
0: blowing those walls up Oh yeah absolutely like look how it changed just the way people approach touring right like you're you're mentioning going around sleeping on people's floors playing squats and just just doing that kind of touring like that, that's entirely because of punk rock, that that sort of, you know, advancement in, in, in culture, in like, you know, disbursement of culture, I guess.
1: I, I think it really is. I think that whole DIY thing, I mean, we were really excited by the digital opportunities, you know, before it, it bankrupted us all. But <laughs> part of it was, is it, and I always say to people, you know, it wasn't all that, you know, We we think of these days when people, you know, had value for records. Yeah, they did, but nobody ever nobody had ever like the record companies wouldn't put us in their stores. Mm-hmm. The only records we ever sold was out of the back of a van. And so the issue for punk was like the labels are never going to promote us. We're never going to get on mainstream radio. We're never going to get stocked in the stores so we can either sit here and cry or we can get in a van and tour. And th- that was, you know, how many great bands across North America just built their careers touring 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 and every one of those tours they created in their wake a hundred great other bands and yeah. i think that that was the thing and now now we all have Bandcamp, and and everybody's learned to you know create their own i think that what we've lost is actually being able to get paid for the music that we do that's that's we got a week we can work that one out we can work that one out i think it's going to be we're going to be okay
0: yeah, I think it's also that like you're talking about that, that face to face community building that goes on when you're playing from town to town where you're actually, you know, in the best case scenario, inspiring people firsthand to kind of go out and do it themselves. And, you know, like you hear stories about those early black flag tours, you know, or where they would go and they play somewhere. And then, you know, six months later, there's a little scene that's kind of pro- like cropped up and it's in their wake.
1: I, I think that's really an important thing. Um and it's, you know, in my work is in politics and in music, I what I, I came to really understand is that, like, by playing shows and singing about things to an audience, that audience told us stories. Mm. You know, it was in between sets. You know, the fans would call us over and they would tell us stories about their lives, and because they thought nobody had ever cared about what they lived before, and for me as a writer, I actually tried to write those into other songs. So the songs became a reflection of the audience. And so I always think like, especially with the Grievous Angels, we were totally a live music band. We played every crazy bar, any kind of scene, anywhere. Mm -hmm. And people think, okay, you're you're the band and they're the audience. But for me, we were the audience. We were watching people live their lives on a Saturday night, their hopes, their fights, their their frustrations, their ups, their downs, and they would they would always. It was in between sets, being pulled over to tables and people talking to us. <laughs> the funniest, of course, is you'd know people trying to talk to you when the other band is playing so loud you can't <laughs> hear anything, and there's someone like it's almost like a a, a up, uh, you know needle in your ear because someone's screaming at trying to be heard because they want to tell you something all those yeah. stories like to me that's what feeds an artist
0: yeah no you're right like it's definitely like it. it kind of it's it's really weird now being stuck at home trying to write where you don't have that kind of inspiration that you get from from being out hearing people's stories
1: yeah you know some of the some of so much of what i've written especially with the grievous angels being more of sort of a voice for you know working class people is that they were stories that were told to us by Mm -hmm. an audience that trusted us and so we 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 played their crazy nights and their fun nights and um you know and then the nights when there were six people in the bar (laughs) i always remember driving i don't know how many hundred from toronto to windsor 500 kilometers and And, you know, sign said band playing tonight. Whenever you see a sign that says band playing tonight, you know, it's going to be a bad night. And it's like, (laughs) there's nobody in there. And it's like, okay, guys, either we're going to get drunk or we're going to give them the best show they've ever had. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, again, that's that punk rock spirit. It's like, it doesn't matter if there's 3,000, 10,000 or three, you're there to play and the amateurs and the ones who are the, you know, the punters who come and go, they might decide to act foolish and act like an idiot but if if you take your craft seriously there's three people there i remember one night it was like we traveled i don't know how many hundreds of kilometers and we were like we're gonna give this crowd the best they're gonna they're gonna die when they see us and we were like two songs into it and one couple got up and left and we were like okay now we're down to two people okay we're still gonna do the show and if they leave we're we're gonna play it for ourselves right like that that's that to me is like that's that's what. Music's about. Like you do it for the love of the music.
0: What was the first concert you went to?
1: Uh, first concert I went to. Um, the first thing that ever blew my mind, I was uh, in grade nine. And that was when bands were still, the big bands, the big rocker bands were still playing the high school tours, mm-hmm. shows. And Max Webster played at our high school. And uh, that became you know kim mitchell of course oh became, absolutely yeah but but the er, the first incarnation of max webster was just such a weird diff they were they were doing all out more like the alex harvey band doing a lot of different stuff and i was just really fascinated by by what they were doing and uh fell in love with them i think most of the rockers at our school thought they were real weird and didn't like them of course kim mitchell then later became arena rock but mm. um so that was pretty much the first show I'd seen, but the first punk shows. I was at the last Pogo. I oh was wow! 50, I was fifteen. I don't know why they even let me into the club. Um, I was at the last Pogo, and at that point, then it was no looking back. the The we were like sixteen, seventeen, going to shows uh, at Toronto punk bars, and he nobody carded you back then. And there were so many great acts that came i remember standing outside a a bar on young street when madness played and we listened to them outside because we were underage and you couldn't get into a bar underage on young street but you could if you were if it was larry's hideaway or the other bars or the edge which was like an amazing we tried to get into the police one night my girlfriend and i but And I hate the police, I got to say, but, uh, (laughs) but we thought we'd go see them, but we couldn't get in. But normally in those days you could say, well, I don't want to see the band. I want to go hang out in the back and then go into the back and then you go in and watch the band. So uh, yeah, we saw a lot of really great bands.
0: It's funny you bring up Max Webster there. And I think like Max Webster, rough trade, even like that first rush record, like there's almost this weird bend to, to Toronto rock music just prior to punk Happening like there's almost like this like proto weird rock thing that's not sonically there, but like it's not quite totally
1: totally yeah. And I mean, you know, I I dis Rush because they you know they became so big, Mm -hmm. but the early Rush were they were so Toronto and they influenced everybody. Everybody, I mean, the Real Statics. God, if I said that to the Real Statics, it punched me. And I love the Real Statics. They opened for us all, you know, before they became really big. But those bands were all really influential, like. We were like 17 and we played some our first big thing was some kind of like battle of the bands thing and greg Godovitz from Godo uh was one of the judges and he brought us on the road with him we were like playing like heavy we were playing playing heavy duty biker bars <laughs> uh, and we were like kids we didn't know how to play like they had to send bouncers with us to go to the washroom because they thought the crowd was going to beat us up but the crowd felt really the crowd was very protective of us because we were like these 110 pounds skinny punk kids yeah. and they thought it was really cute. Um, but like God of it, like, there was a, yeah, the Toronto scene, it, it wasn't, it was different, you know? And, uh, so I think we were like picking up a lot of different influences and a lot of those things. And certainly if you listen to the real statics, I think a lot of those influences are really, you can really trace them. Um, that sort of mixture of rock, the prog rock, there were some really, really cool, different Canadian things happening. And I think, again, what the great thing about early punk was that none of it was really defined. We were just mm-hmm. trying to figure out what fit and what didn't. And we'd try different things and some things worked and some things didn't.
0: So when you guys first started playing, like who, you know, you mentioned being part of the sort of the second wave of bands, who were some of the other bands that were from that wave like you know like were there other bands from scarborough before you guys started playing downtown more
1: um yeah i mean we we were um, i think there was a whole bunch of kids like the the older groups was like vile tones mm-hmm. um you know they were in their they were probably mid-20s we thought they were ancient we were about <laughs> 17 um teenage head um the diodes um the Demics were like, I think that record was the greatest punk record ever made. Like, we just listened to it over and over and over again. And then we came along. So it was Les Tranger, uh the Rail Statics came along, Kinetic Ideals, mm-hmm. uh, the Rent Boys. Um, there was a ton of bands then that came out. Fifth Column, we played with all those groups. Like, we played, I don't know how many countless shows with them. But it was also the bars. Like, you had Larry's Hideaway was this incredible like it was such a trashy dive. And uh, I've th- thought a lot about Larry's because upstairs was a pretty grotty drug prostitute place. And downstairs were all these kids, but they were really protective of us. It was sort of like, I remember them saying, it was, don't you look at what goes on upstairs? You keep your nose out and you go downstairs and play your show. And don't, you know, like they were pretty tough guys who ran the place, but no kids ever got caught up in that world that was upstairs. There was a kid's world downstairs. And, and we were all under 19 and uh um, cabana room was the big one. I think that cabana room for a lot of bands was you know lowest of the low open for us. The skydiggers came out of Directive 17, Jason Collette uh and lazy grace was his band. The cabana room if you talk to I think any Toronto band from that time, the cabana room and Jimmy Scopus, the uh, the Greek owner was uh he gave so many bands an opportunity to to just try things out
0: where was the cabana room i've never heard of this venue
1: the cabana room was the spadina hotel at king and spadina yeah Yeah. yeah. upstairs and it was like a 1940s um it was like a 1940s drinking establishment gone downhill Mm -hmm. and it was run by jimmy jimmy the greek jimmy scopus and uh and then what Jimmy did was after this, like we played all the bands played there, like any band that came out at that time, this Cabana Room, Jimmy was like our, our Greek dad. Um, but when we came back with our second itineration of bands, like from Late Tranger, I came back with Grievous Angels. Jimmy would give us like, he'd say, okay. I need you boys to do Wednesday nights. Can you do a whole, Wednesday nights from two months all summer? I need Wednesday night covered. We're like, uh, oh, that's a lot. Jimmy goes, well, I take it or leave it. So we, we took all Wednesdays. And then, um, Andrew cash started Monday night meltdowns, acoustic meltdowns. And again, we were like, I think we were all retooling from the punk thing and, mm-hmm. and starting to to go into different directions. So Andrew cash started this Monday night meltdown, acoustic meltdown. And, um, it was all acoustic music and a uh, fiddle, you had Jim Ediger, who's an incredible fiddler, who's on a couple of his albums. And then that's when Andy Mays and Josh started the Skydiggers thing going. And then Pete Cash, um, like a whole bunch of acts came out and thought, well, maybe we'll just try a couple of acoustic songs. And so that that was a, a, a real natural transition from a lot of the punk bands had been playing the, those bars that you, you would you'd get these gigs at the Spadina to just, try something different and um you know the angels when we first started doing our wednesday night we didn't we weren't doing that much original we were doing like hank williams and patsy klein and clancy brothers and you know but we did uh we did a led zeppelin song on accordion and we were just trying a bunch of and Stomp and tom Stomp and tom was the other huge i think um, push that drove us to uh alt like that sort of alt country thing Johnny Cash was a was was punk yeah yeah but Stomp and Tom was Canadian punk and um that was really the the real statics were really with Stomp and Tom then and 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 I because I'd grown up on Stomp and Tom and and again now Stomp and Tom is like this Canadian icon he was like considered he he, he'd stopped playing he would he he was the guy that you know the cool people made fun of and the, our punk generation rediscovered him and said no, this guy's the real deal he is he is he's our woody Guthrie. he's our johnny cash so um uh, you know we were all like wanting to learn stomp and tom songs that's where we met with the guys from uic and uh all this stuff started to just percolate into to uh, i think taking punk into a different different realm which is with me obviously became the grievous angels
0: and it also feels like that's what punk was always about. Like, you know, rediscovering the stuff that had been thrown away from music's past. Like, like you're saying, Stomp Tom, like that goes back to the horseshoe, like his, you know, legendary live nights at the horseshoe tavern.
1: I I really think it, it is. It's, I mean, punk was about reggae, uh, mm-hmm. but punk was about rockabilly. Like I remember going into long and McQuaid's when the place was full of like, you know, you know, all the long hairs wanting to do a stairway to heaven. And I had a Gene Vincent record.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and uh, I didn't even know who Gene Vincent was, but I knew it was cool. <laughs> and I knew it was cool because everyone was like, "What the hell is that?" I said, "It's Gene Vincent," and it was like they didn't know if he was new or what. Like, yeah. so uh, you know, and and I always remember an amazing night. My mom and I went to see Johnny Cash and the Carter Family one time at Ontario Place, and there were all these like older people, like my mom. And I couldn't believe it, a whole bunch of punks, a whole bunch of young leather jackets, right? Yeah. It was like going to see Peter Tosh. Uh, they were all Jamaicans, and suddenly there were all these young punk kids going to see Toots and the Maytals. It was a huge Jamaican audience and like 12 white kids in leather jackets, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the punk punk was and, – and the Clash were, I think, an encyclopedia of music for us because they – made us think in other ways. They pushed us to think things we weren't necessarily going to hear to say, listen to it. Like Magnificent Seven, that whole funk sound made us listen to stuff. And I think that that was really, I think to me that, so when people say, oh, punk rock, you don't sound punk rock. It's like, punk's an attitude. Punk's a way of seeing the world. It's not It's not what how loud you play the chord. It's how you approach that chord and think, what can that chord do?
0: How long after you formed the band did Innocent Hands get recorded? Um,
1: Innocent Hands was recorded... um...
0: It comes uh, in 82 i think right
1: yeah so we were i remember us all saying we were like <laughs> we were like saying one time you know the jam had their first demo when they're 18 and like we're almost like 20 years old and we're complete failures <laughs> and uh so we were um we were we formed in around 1980 we we quit school and 1982 we had innocent hands out um and then uh, yeah that was i think uh that and that first album the third album the third record i think are the high points of late tranger the second one we were we were trying a whole bunch of stuff we were gang of 4 we were trying um you know talking heads a lot of stuff just didn't work out but there was a sound that really coalesced what became i think a very clearly tranger sound and then i i was moving into other sounds i was really really interesting going back to rootsy kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and that's why the grievous angels is a more natural fit at that point
0: it feels like that was like a lot of the queen street scene too like you look at like someone like handsome ned or even blue rodeo like it feels like there was a after you know almost the last pogo there's like a, a return or like a search for for like what is the true punk like what is the the sound beyond the aggression that is punk
1: i i yeah i think it you know, to us, like and, and I often joke about the band the name the Grievous Angels. When we picked the Grievous Angels, there hadn't been a Graham Parsons revival as of yet. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had known there was gonna be a huge Graham Parsons revival, I wouldn't ever picked the name Grievous Angels because <laughs> yeah. it's like we've been stuck with it ever since. There's about 39 Grievous Angels bands out there, and people keep saying, Oh, you're a Graham Parsons cover band. It's like, no, when we when we, literally Graham had died and like people, like Like I think Andrew Cash's older brothers knew Graham Parsons and that sort of his sort of hippie brothers, but like a lot of people didn't know him. But Graham was a real natural, I think, transition into that alt country sound and a whole bunch of like Wilco and all these bands were going in that direction. I think it's a really natural thing with punk because punk, you know, if you think of like a group like The Clash and how deeply committed they were to Roots music, well Johnny Cash was as punk as it got mm-hmm. and I think a lot of a lot of punk kids just made that switch they 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 heard rock they heard clash and punk and mod music and then they heard rockabilly and rockabilly brought them back to a country sound and that country sound it was outlaw music and I think what punk brought to it is that I mean so we always joked with about the grievous angels is we were just we were just playing hank williams faster and harder uh maybe with a little less soul but we were trying
0: well i guess speaking of true outlaws did you have any run-ins or did you ever have any stories with the ugly they're such an infamous band in toronto around that time
1: yeah but they were older than us
0: they're from the east end too though right like well they're i guess they're more kind of like logan and danforth area type thing
1: yeah that we knew of them but it was mm-hmm. funny because a lot of those bands like Again, we were, like, 17. We were probably more mod than those guys, like, when we were all, like, 17-year-olds. And so, yeah, we knew of them, but, like, we didn't. And there was, like, this whole gang that went with the Vile Tones, the Blake Street Boys. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, we were never really in that world at all. Like, we sort of were, uh, yeah, it was it, it, it does sound really strange that two years in one small music scene could create such a difference, but that was, that was how fast and how much things were changing then as well. There was a, there was a whole, there was a bunch of stuff happening one after another. And it uh, depends where you, where you found yourself or where you woke up.
0: Yeah. It really feels like, like, you know, you look at it like something like the smash tape and kind of around this period, like you have that, early scene you talked about with like you know the vile tones and teenage head and like you know like uh cardboard brains and and very you know like this sort of core scene but then you know like these two years by that point you've got you know the kinetic ideals and all that mannequin record stuff you've got you know all the more hardcore stuff that's happening with you know youth 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 and those bands and then yourselves like it feels like it almost like this explosion that kind of happens
1: yeah and and they were exploding all over the place like youth 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 uh we knew those guys really really well and we were like they were that whole hardcore california sound was coming out in a really different way i think toronto was unique because it was it was the older crowd had heard it was focused on new york because that was like television it was ramones uh, you know the Lou Reed thing. New York was such a natural focus for Toronto, mm. but the London, UK, uh, Manchester sound had a huge influence in Toronto. And then the California thing happened, which was very, very much West Coast DOA and all those bands, the Subhumans. Uh, they that was like a whole different world to us. uh Art Bergman and that sort of West Coast thing was like there was a real. They, they, again, punk had such huge divisions as to whose gang you were in kind of thing (laughs) you know i mean god like it's now now it all just seems so like we were all in the same gang we just but we couldn't tell each other we were in the same gang so uh, but um yeah youth 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 i remember and young lions made the huge switch from uh, blew our mind from the stiff little fingers kind of punk reggae to like hardcore and you're like what happened there? what did you guys do that for? Like, uh, like uh, to them it was natural Tussle was like, what's going on here? But yeah, there was a lot of really interesting subcultures. And then of course there was a lot of like, like we used to, we used to be really snooty about the art school crowd, but there were some great bands. Like, and they were, some of them were older, like Martha and the muffins.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think one of the biggest bands, our biggest influence back then was the mods.
0: Yeah. a Great band. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, because I think what blew us away about the mods, and we didn't really even know at that point that there was a mod movement. <laughs> we didn't know anything about mods until Quadrophenia came out. But the thing about the mods is that their posters were incredible. Uh, and again, those are the days when you, the only way to you know you couldn't do text messages, you had posters. Le was a poster band. We we basically buried the city in posters, not not ones that came off easily. We had heavy duty glue buckets people got charged all the time with us like police were always coming after us because we, we we glued our posters onto everything and uh one of our big influences was the mods and they had these great early 1960s style like who you know pop posters and we thought and and artwork was a big thing and we and it was so hard to do like lecture set and like we didn't have like desktop computers it was cut and paste stuff so um that band was a big big influence on us they were fun they were loud they were poppy they drove you know the kids came out and we were like man we want to get up on stage and do what they do except of course with us we were a lot more political than them
0: yeah like it feels like that's definitely something that kind of comes in with that second wave of bands is there's like a lot more of a an overt political awareness or like over like in all sorts of parts of the scene too. Like there's a lot more sort of like awareness of politics with that second wave of bands.
1: Yeah. And I think it was, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Like people look back on the eighties, kind of like the way people looked on the fifties is this fun time. And uh, you know, they had goofy songs and funny clothes and big hair. And, but the eighties was a very dark time. It was like, it was Reagan, it was Thatcher. It was uh, huge marches in the streets. It was the death squads, uh, you know, that the Americans were paying for in Guatemala. And it felt like politics was a life and death situation. And we were really, like people went to huge rallies. like the rallies against nuclear weapons, like there was a real fear that we were moving towards a a, a nuclear, showdown probably the way we hadn't been since the 19 dark points of the 1950s mm-hmm. and so it, it was really something to talk about and to write about and uh, I think for us as a, as young musicians and uh, that it, it just felt really natural and the other thing um the big battle then was about apartheid I mean if you were a musician and you weren't taking a stand on apartheid you were like you were you were nobody like everybody everybody who was anybody at that point took a stand on apartheid so le uh was going to win a big award a big music award uh, through cfny and it was being supported by carlsberg beer and carlsberg beer was a south african brewery and (laughs) we refused to show up for the award ceremony because we were so uh maybe because we came out of catholic school and we were like really like if we were going to be if something was right we had to be right about it and we we refused to show up for our award and people were like oh man you guys just killed your career you know you're never going to live this one down it was like yeah but it's a south african brewery how can we be talking about apartheid and be getting you know so there was all these um, there was a lot of politics that uh, i think it was a really dynamic time and well, I think it's a really dynamic time now. That's why I love Gen Z, man. I'm like I am like on fire. I'm like take you guys go. Like I'm just I, I show up at the rallies and I'm like this is this is this is what I dreamt of.
0: Yeah, it feels like it's it's what like punk rock was always talking about is finally here in terms of like even when you go to a punk rock show, like now it feels as diverse as punk always said it was. Now when you go to, when you see young kids at these shows like it's definitely a lot more diverse than it was when my band was playing.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm feeling that I'm feeling like there's a new there's a there's something out there, and uh, you know, of course, COVID has put a big blanket on it, but like, let's remember, just before COVID, we had the largest c- civil rights movement in Canadian history, civil disobedience, those marches about the Wet'suwet'en pipeline. Mm-hmm. Like they were shutting this, they were shutting the country down. The power structure was freaking out. Like I remember being in Ottawa and seeing young indigenous, and they were mostly led by young women saying, and they had this chant. I don't remember exactly, but it was something like, you know, we're, we're young, we're indigenous, we're unarmed and we're unafraid. And they would just walk out onto the main streets and stop all the traffic. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow, you know, and I get to watch this happening. Like, cause it's about taking control and it's about saying we're not afraid and it's about using the tools that you have and like those tools of uh, my 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 youngest daughter's the upper end of gen z she's like dad like this young generation doesn't believe the you know they don't believe that the system works for them and i was thinking that you see those generations that are see the cultural break the the political break the economic uncertainty and decide yeah, we're going to just walk across that break and ch- choose something different.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's a real, that's really exciting to watch.
0: You brought like, you know, uh, up how political Toronto was back then. And the other thing that's kind of really happening in the 80s, which I think people don't talk about much now, or it's not really looked upon. is just how, how like that Toronto was kind of growing up as a city in terms of like, you know, violence in terms of just, just urban spread and and sprawl that was kind of happening. And you also have the rise of neo-nazis and the and the advent of neo-nazis showing up in the punk scene. Like did you witness that kind of like coming of violence, coming of of like sort of this new not so great Toronto during that time?
1: Well, um, I think one of the huge influences that really drove uh, drew us in was rock against racism. Mm-hmm. um, and it was very much like, you know, England, had uh you know we're seeing national front seeing neo-nazi um and the attempt to get young punk artists active in rock against racism we got involved in the rock against racism movement in toronto at a time when there was a neo-nazi movement on the move uh and i think a lot of young punk kids who just weren't all that politically aware were playing with fascism Uh, and we later on, we were really hardcore. It's like you wear a swastika, you get the f out. Like you don't, you do not wear a swastika. This is this is a symbol of mass killing. And there were kids who didn't know that, and then there are kids who I think were playing with it. And we were like, we called that stuff out all the time. I mean, <laughs> we got we we took a, our share of abuse and bottles and and um, stuff thrown at us for calling it out at the dead Kennedys because the dead Kennedys drew that crowd. Even though the dead Kennedys did not uh, uh, they were they were adamantly opposed to it. But rock against racism was a big, big thing to sort of say to people like it's not cool to be racist. It's not cool to go along with this. You got to shut this stuff down. And I think it it helped it had a huge I think it played a big part in keeping the punk scene from becoming reactionary because I think if we look back on it, particularly the English scene. And then of course what happened in the U S it would have been very easy for the punk movement to become a reactionary, you know, white power movement. Like it didn't have to be an open-minded movement. It could have been a closed-minded reactionary movement. And it took a lot of work to keep it from becoming that. And we see it now in terms of just the huge dangers that are being caused by disinformation and uh, you know the proud boys kind of bullshit but it was definitely there it was definitely there and uh, and i actually think now in a way looking back and it was definitely what happened in england a lot of it was um, anti-asian as opposed to anti-black because the thing about black was that reggae had a huge influence on the punks it opened up a lot of punk minds to like the jamaican sounds in toronto and the the, the caribbean thing that was happening because so much of toronto at that point scarborough and and that was there was a huge uh, you know caribbean influence but um a lot of the racism at that time was directed against south asians that didn't have the same kind of sort of cultural in to the to the punk community and i think that was something also that happened in the uk i mean the F- rock against racism had to do a lot of work to say to people you know it's not it's, being racist is not cool you know yeah. wearing, wearing wearing one of those british uh, saint george's t-shirts and that sort of skinhead look like think about what you're doing
0: all right, well, you brought up that it was a fight, you know, like rock against racism, like the stories here, about the BFGs going to war with Nazis like it was like there's a reason that that stuff wasn't around in Toronto in sort of any great way in the 90s is because people fought so hard to get rid of it in the 80s.
1: Yeah, I mean, and we don't talk about it a lot. But I mean, we, we used to carry a road crew that was more members. We had more m- members in our road crew than in the band and our road crew were all pretty tough guys like Big mm-hmm. Nick was our head roadie and uh, Big Nick. Uh, it was yugoslavia and big nick had no time for nazis and like that was uh that happened you know and uh yeah. <laughs> like our our we used to we we used to joke we still joke about it now they call them the rude boys like my road crew uh they, they, they come to parliament about once every two years some of the old guys and, and and all the political staffers say do you have are these um do you have like did do you have like hired security because they're all like <laughs> they're all like nice guys in their fifties now, but they all are pretty still really big guys with leather jackets. And back in the day, they were like, ah, Chuck, why did you shoot your mouth off? Everything was going good. And then you shot your mouth off about the Nazis. And now look, then I said, well, thank God you guys were there to get me out of it. So uh, (laughs) yeah, there were some, um, but it had, they had, they, I think it was really important.
0: Yeah, it was. Yeah. Nazis had to
1: know you're not welcome here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Well, that's the only,
1: yeah. You don't get to come and hang out and be cool. You're not cool. Leave. You leave now and everything's fine. And that was, that was the rule. That was the rule of thumb in all the places we ever played Nazis, you leave.
0: Yeah. I remember going to see even a, a Chrome egg show, you know, a few years ago and uh, a Nazi dude showed up and before anyone could do anything, Steve goof appeared out of like nowhere and threw the guy down the stairs and told him <laughs> to leave. Like it was yeah. just like, it, it's, but, it, but that's what it takes. You know, like it is, uh unfortunately you know like a, a physical thing like I think that's shown by what happened in Toronto in the 80s like it was it was a war
1: yeah no it was definitely and I there was a there was a really great little club called Start Dancing that um uh Vera Bigel and Dan Hughes ran and it was just kids coming out and dancing to like you know they, they would play everything from like uh you know, uh, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas to uh, to the Jam to punk music, and kids would go dance at it. And, and every now and then, the Nazis would show up. And um, and uh, and you know, they they were just kids; they didn't have security. And most of the times, when the, the Nazis showed up, fortunately, my crew was there. Right, like mm-hmm. Big Nick and my brother and his crew, and and they were like, "Time to go, boys. <laughs> You're not getting in." this isn't your place you're not allowed here and then it, and often they'd go and pick on some kid down the road and beat them up right and it was yeah. really bad stuff but i think there was that sense of solidarity that we're drawing the line here you're not getting in this isn't going to happen you're not welcome and and it's the same thing today we just got to say nat you know you know what's it nazi punk have off right like yeah. nazis no not you're not allowed and and they go away like they they go out and they they do whatever they do but we can't let them get in the cultural fabric and that's the same as what we're seeing you know online and and all like they're always trying to weave their way in and we got to just say no you're not here you're not welcome go away all
0: right going back to uh the first 12 inch sensible records your guys record company
1: yeah that was james sensible that was our um uh who's our manager we called it sensible records yeah we did our own records and um those were done on two inch analog tape that's why um they were analog tape was so expensive um so the max we could do was six songs <laughs> <We> <laughs> could, we, yeah we, there was no digital then it was like that that's old school that's like what frank sinatra used to record on was two inch
0: analog tape well that's why it sounds so good still Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah it's funny because the only other record that came out on Sensible Records is that uh, Los Popularos band uh, Popularos band that you brought up with Art, well, you, Art Bergman's band after Young Canadians.
1: Oh, I love Art Bergman, yeah. Uh, James must have done that after we fired him, so <laughs> 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 Sensible Records was strictly, and then it became, I think we became Ground Zero Records, but, you know, it was yeah, all you just, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I didn't know James put that up. That's great. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. He's uh, James is still James still I think he's with one of the CBC um, radio formatting things, but he was our first manager high school kid and we were all high school kids, you know, uh, so he was gonna be our manager. And we put out that record and uh, yeah it did really well the great the hilarious thing was, you reach that point where you either you either do a second pressing or you put the money into a next record. Mm-hmm. So it, that was always a decision time to um, if we're gonna why put out a second pressing let's start working on their next record
0: and were you getting outside of toronto much at that point like was there much of sort of like a a touring kind of circuit
1: that's a really important question because touring was not possible for punk bands back then so we were heavily playing um basically from windsor we got down to windsor as far but london there was punk bars windsor or waterloo kitchener waterloo guelph there were tons of bars to play because the universities Mm -hmm. peterborough was a huge hot spot we got to montreal a number of times montreal but montreal is a really uh, was a strange town back then um and then we got a national tour and (laughs) it was with the dub rifles oh wow yeah and um because the uh, the agency, which was back then the, the big rock agency, didn't think they could sell us across Canada. And then maybe I'm gonna say something out of turn here, but the reality was was once the Dub Rifles had, they didn't have a great reputation in some bars because of some of the damage they'd done. So once we got on the road with them, a whole bunch of our shows got canceled. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we got to ha- Halifax and we were working our way back and the Western tour fell through. And uh, and and uh, they were saying to us out West, we'd love to have you guys. But uh, um, we like Le but they were they were mad at the Dub Rifles because what it taught us is Canada's a real small place. Yeah what you do in one town is going to be heard in another town like you don't realize that at the time but but it it was a really interesting thing because the ability to cross canada for punk bands was so hard back then uh because again if any you know any of your podcast listeners are ever toured getting out of ontario is a hell of a thing so the west coast bands they only got to Toronto just by being crazy enough to get in the bus and drive all the way. Uh, There was, there wasn't a lot to play in between. I think by the late eighties, it had changed and, and Le Tranger broke that with a national tour, other bands like the Real Static started tour. Like when the Grievous Angels started to tour by the late eighties, we were, we were able to play uh, enough bars to get across the country. But the, the original punk scene in the early eighties, they lived in they lived in pockets where you could play a number of bars or in a couple of towns that were close by but getting across the vast expanse of Canada and so all these kids who were like in Regina and that they were listening to shows like Brave New Waves they were listening to this stuff long distance but getting I think the, I think the west coast bands may have been a little more um uh, brave they just they just got in the vans i remember subhumans coming and doa coming and all those bands like from the west coast i don't know if the young canadians ever got as far as toronto but um so they they were growing up and they were playing really in silos very different they were they were in real hothouses of development that were where you got really different sounds coming out of different areas
0: well i think it, like you said it's 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 Ontario such a nightmare to get out of that you're right. Like it's a West coast bands, but I've never, it must've happened, but I've never seen a teenage head flyer for them playing any shows in like, you know, even Montreal or, or, or even Winnipeg, you know, like it's just the idea of like that, like you're saying that first wave of of Toronto punk. just. Never yeah, I don't lasted. think,
1: I don't think any of those bands ever got outside that, that, you know, the corridor from, you know, Hamilton or Guelph, um, a couple of the west coast bands did and they did it just by sheer um you know determination by the time the angels started touring in the late 80s we 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 broke it through but one of the things that helped for us was that we got a couple of crazy shows in like northern ontario country bars because we yeah. had the stand-up bass and the accordion and we were just crazy enough to do it and and we had basically made gas money to get to thunder bay and there was a bar in thunder bay then from thunder bay it's like i don't know is it 12 hours to winnipeg yeah (laughs) and then from winnipeg it's 12 hours to regina so again if you don't have a show in between you're gonna die at the side of the road like canada is not an easy place to tour um the angels made it like it was our it became our you know we were we were we were going to be road dogs. We we made that tour a number of times, but uh, it was never an easy thing to coordinate.
0: Oh yeah, like how many of those how many bands have just like broken up trying to do that tour across Canada?
1: Yeah, like, I, I think the now. last Latronche tour, which I wasn't on at the time, I think I think they died in Calgary. I remember. I've never heard many of the details, but I don't think it went like you know your van breaks down it's like you're getting 300 bucks for the night what are you gonna do it's two thousand kilometers to get home i mean those were that's why i loved a hardcore logo like it just it was such a great punk movie it it just to me it's a it's it's not even a punk movie it's just such a classic canadian movie it's like yeah this is life folks like you know trying to get to edmonton to play that's you know in the middle of winter in february and then the bar is closed like (laughs) i mean you've seen it you've lived that oh yes
0: oh yeah no i think i think we realized very early on uh we got to do that thing where you cut through america and just come back up into winnipeg and do that that kind of routing because yeah. when we eventually did that cross canada tour you're right there's like there are some drives especially if you're playing in a band that that you know is is loud where you're not going to get a show for 12 hours of that drive several times on the on the ride across Canada.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, it it um, like I, I always remember um, there was a bar in Hamilton and Hamilton was funny playing because our manager, us were as a Toronto band, our manager said, you're going to Hamilton, that's the big city. You're not in Toronto anymore and you're going to have to behave yourself in the big city because they don't put up with bands to shoot their mouths off and and so we saw Hamilton was was a a life lesson but I remember we were we had this gig at this place called the golden garter which was known as the golden gutter Um, and uh, anyways uh, it was run by bikers Mm -hmm. and we couldn't get the guy to call us back about a show and uh, we called one night and he he said why are you calling me? What are you calling me for? It's like, cause we have a show tomorrow. And he goes, no show I'm leaving. It's like, what do you mean I'm leaving? He goes, I, I got to leave the country. I got to leave right now. And <laughs> I was like, yeah, but like all our gears there and he goes, I'm gone. I'm, I, I'm leaving. And it was like, that's uh that was life on the road, you know, like yeah. you never knew what was coming next. And
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely is a, a little, so uh, when I talk
1: about punk rock university, that was punk rock university. Like, you know, like having to, having to go with our road crew at three in the morning to find out where the man where the where the bar owner lived because he snuck out without paying us like <laughs> and you know that 300 bucks or 400 bucks like we couldn't get home without it
0: yeah oh like, yeah
1: that was your money like you we couldn't pay the gas like i, I we you know being stuck at a gas station in, in uh in Manitoba and suddenly realizing that the our our band manager, hadn't told us that there's no money left. Well, we got 1,200 kilometers to go. <laughs> How are we going to get there? You know, those are lessons uh, about being organized and about practicing and about, you know, just taking it and saying, nope, we're going to get to that show. The show goes on.
0: Um, I have kept you for a long time, Charlie. Would you ever come back for a part two at some point?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. We, Before- we, I don't think we got out of the 80s, so.
0: Well, no, that's the way this, I I should have warned you in advance. This show moves at a snail's pace. Like we are are really a very slow, uh, but this has been incredible because I think there's, there's almost like this sort of um, like, like, you know, now, especially people know about that first wave of Toronto punk rock stuff. And then people definitely know kind of like about sort of the late 80s into the 90s and sort of like the pre-can rock renaissance stuff but the stuff that we're talking about seems almost like a forgotten time like there's a lot of bands a lot of great bands that would lead to huge bands that that just are kind of forgotten about like district 17 you brought up even
1: yeah i mean uh these groups uh, i think i think it was um i think it was basically where we were all going to school and so mm. many of those bands so many of those players went on to become huge bands like you know like blue rodeo they were the high fives we went to see them yeah Um, you know um they were they they were sort of trying to get this alt they then quite got the alt country thing they were sort of doing a bit of a beatles thing and we were like what are these guys doing then i saw keeler on the street about a year later and he just looked like he had it together and that was the blue rodeo look boom it was like they'd gone from the high fives to like, you know, that sort of country shirts. And then they took off. Right. And that that was, it was a school. Like people were trying things out, learning things and something, some lessons were learned and some things really hit and some things really missed, but a lot of great
0: acts came out of it. I love that high fives record though. That record's incredible.
1: Oh yeah. 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 We went to see them and we were like,
0: what are these guys up
1: to? And then, then it was like blue rodeo that transformation. Wow. How did, how how did that happen? Like it just boom, it it there it was.
0: Well, and the uh, the I think sort of something emblematic of that kind of period to me is that sound of the streets. Sound from the streets tape compilation that you're on. Yeah, yeah. And I also have a weird liar like was that a label? Was that a night? Like, I have a, a, a sound from the streets, Toronto New Alternative, Four Nights Flyer at the Rivoli. Okay, you,
1: guys- you, uh, you need Dave McIntosh on your show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he, that.
1: No, he's uh, he's running a little cafe up in the highlands of Scotland now. But Dave, Dave, Dave uh, his name was Dave Rave back in the day. But Dave Rave organized Sounds from the Streets, and he is – he is the memory. He is the uh, encyclopedia of that whole sound time and all those bands. He is very faithful to that. He, he organized it. He ran a, fa- he ran a zine again, zines were what we, you know, we didn't have an internet. We had fanzines. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, sounds from the street actually was attempting to say, let's coalesce this sound into something that we can actually make and package and, promote as a as a distinct thing so yeah on a future show you'll have to have dave rave on um, dave mcintosh he's he's he is he is he is the, the memory of all a lot of this stuff it's, it's he's he loves it he's never forgotten I a, of things
0: i think i have a dave rave single he put out records too right
1: um no is that a
0: different dave rave maybe
1: he i don't know maybe not 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 him singing but he he okay. was he he was active with people
0: it's yeah. uh, it's it's funny because like it it seems like it would be a really hard thing to package. Like you look at Discord records, you look at you know, even the stuff we're talking about on the West Coast scene with like frontier records or SST records, like you know, that, that's very easy to kind of market and package someone because sonically they're all in the same wheelhouse, but sounds on the streets, you've got yourselves, youth, 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 rent boys, like it's it it's it's something for everybody.
1: Yeah, I think that, that was I think that was one of the interesting things about the Toronto scene and one of the problems of it. I don't think it packaged all that well it it wasn't like it wasn't that distinct like vancouver sound or mm-hmm. la sound there was a lot of people doing really really different stuff and then there were just really out there marginal acts like i've been thinking a lot about maya bannerman who i've never hear of like she was just this really strange uh, voice like kind of like a jane sibry and she sang beautiful songs and like you'd go to a show and there'd be like someone like a jane Sibbery yeah almost like a you know Joni mitchell type and then then there'd be like the cds or you know a punk band on it was it was a real mix it was again i think it was a lot of stuff was being bubbling up and coming to a to a to a level where and you know ended up with like you know uh mary margaret o'hara and yep. like a lot of those Def- definitive Toronto albums that came out from that was bubbling up out of those sounds from the streets kind of things.
0: Um, You mentioned zines and obviously you go on to publish a magazine. Were, did you do a zine back in the day or were zines informative on you back then?
1: Well, zines were, I mean we we lived with zines. Uh we, we were more interested in getting our picture in one than writing one.
0: Um
1: <laughs> but um yeah the zines uh there was this what was her name? I I'm drawing a blank now. She was about fourteen. She she ran a really interesting zine. Uh a mu- you know, a music fan, fourteen, fifteen year old ran her zine. Was right? it Dr. Like-
0: Smith, maybe was it called or
1: Oh, I can't remember.
0: Okay, I will, I will try and figure this out. I I, I
1: have a, I have a cover with us adamant and the young lions on a on a, on one of her zines. But anyways, uh, Diana, what a what a yeah I know I know. But like the yeah, the zines were like you would go down to the record stores and buy these like little photocopied things that people would put out, and they were
0: yeah.
1: homemade, and um, they would they would interview bands, and you know they would faithfully transcribe our our dumb incoherent mutterings and then fans would read them and then quote them back to us so the zines were yeah that was that was part of it it was posters it was music you know again places like Ottawa or Kitchener where you had a radio station that could be heard outside the university that actually played bands that's that was that was how it all was done and then shows like i think it was what was the show on cbc that played at late at 11 o'clock at night with uh, augusta page
0: no and not got, brand new, um okay her, yeah
1: she had she had her show at, at like 11 o'clock at night and if you got on that show kids in regina heard you otherwise nobody heard you the okay the other big 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 element was much music much yeah. music yeah uh you know we used to make fun of jd and um and Je- Jeannie becker but like they actually they they broke all, like any band if you got on much music you were now you were real so there yeah. you go that was, yeah. that was that was that was the, that was the extent of the culture in cfny
0: we brought that dick kennedy show when i worked there i went to the archives and they shot that show the whole show with three cameras like wow like, the whole yeah. day, like who else was putting the dick kennedy's on tv back then
1: i know and that that show was a that was like that was mayhem like that wouldn't have been on today like nobody would have covered that oh, no they uh, covered the dead kennedys you know there's my 14 year old brother is one of the only road crews trying to like stop nazis from jumping a jello and it's like and it's on tv <laughs> like <yeah. laughs> that was that was the times
0: <laughs> oh well this has been the time of my life for me anytime you want to come back here charlie and talk about hey, this let's, stuff.
1: let's let's do this like, well, give me a subject next time and we'll we'll talk well I'll, I'll, you know me i could talk forever so uh but the, this was fun because i don't i've been thinking a little bit about that time and i think it's a lot more there's a lot of things to think about it's it's an there was an interesting gelling so this has been a lot of, this has been a blast <laughs>
0: Thank you Charlie for coming on the show And I don't speak just for myself when I say this I think I speak for Charlie too Get out there right now and get yourself informed About all the issues that are going on Here in Canada right now If you're able to vote in our next election Because we have an election coming up On, um, on Monday, September 20th So get out there right now Get informed And, and go vote and Go vote. And, and Charlie will be back for part two at some point in the near future. I cannot wait for that. Speaking of not being able to wait, I cannot wait for you to hear the next episode of Turned Out a Punk, because the next episode of Turned Out a Punk is another one that I thought lost. This is a meeting of the minds of Epic Proportions. One of the greatest episodes ever is the Tony Molina episode, where Tony Molina comes on the show. Well, Tony Molina is back, returning with Turned Out a Punk family member Nick Woge and these two have never met before and they come together and I don't know. I really felt like a matchmaker making something happen here. You know, these these people just hit it off and you will hear it all in all its glory on the next episode of the show. Well that's it. Remember as always black lives matter, the lives of indigenous peoples matter we need to protect trans kids and we need to help trans people protect themselves. We need to stop hate and violence towards Asian people and people of different faiths. And just, just this isn't political. As I say each and every week, these aren't political issues like this, this stuff has nothing to do with an election. This is just basic human rights shit. So as I say, you know, go out there and get yourself informed, read about what's happening in this world. If there's organizations that are doing work in an area that you feel strongly about, support those organizations if there's if there's protests or demonstrations, in uh, you know, go and, and lend your support to that too. Uh, lend financial support if you can. Like do do what you can. Um, but at the end of the day, we just need to say, fuck off to this Nazi shit. Fuck off to this fascist shit because it's a non-starter. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. You're just going to be like, shit. This is just taking up more space as I'm dying. So get them out of me. Give someone else the gift of life, potentially. Uh, And it does. It does. I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes. So, you know, um, go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. Start a band. Start a fanzine here, Charlie. You know, start a band. Next thing you know, maybe you're going to be a member of parliament. Maybe you're going to be able to help change the world and make the world a better place. Who knows? You know? Could all just start? You don't have to even start a band. You just start draw a pitch for yourself. Just do anything, something creative for yourself. Try meditating. I didn't believe in it, and I try it, and it works. And for me, maybe it'll work for you. You know. All right, I think that's it. Stay safe, everyone. I I look forward to hopefully seeing you all again in person, and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.